Hey, Dr. Adam. Hello, everyone. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Liver Talks. The Liver Fellow Network podcast brought to you by ASLD. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Not yet. (laughs) Okay. We're working on it. We're getting there. Yeah. We're in meetings. We're taking meetings. We took meetings. Yes. Yeah. How are you? So hopefully... I'm okay. I'm good. (laughs) I thought I'd just cut that off. (laughs) That's okay. No, it's exciting because this is the first time I'm recording a podcast in my work office. It's true. It looks very good for those not able to see his office, which is hopefully all of you. Um, He actually has a liver talks little sign in his office, along with his many, many diplomas and awards. Right. Well, the the, the liver talk sign was a gift from my co-host. Oh, that's Alex. right. That's right. It was so nice <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how quickly you forget. Um, but how are you? Are you well rested? Are you feeling spry? I <laughs> never younger. Never younger. Uh, I feel great. How are, as people will hear very shortly, we're recording this intro a few days after we recorded the actual interview in which I, I, magic. I could barely speak. Um, so hopefully my voice sounds a little more normal now than it did then. Right. And, yes. but, but it's also because you're probably not sleeping much because you're a father. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Not that um, any of the episodes we've recorded this year included uh, me well-rested. At least now right, I'm true. not post-call. I'm just post-middle-of-the-night uh, feed, as it were. The, the transition from me sounding terrible last year to you sounding terrible this year has gone off seamlessly. It's been, it's been lovely. I can't wait to hear what the podcast sounds like next year when we're both attendings. And from the looks of you sleeping... 10 to 12 hours a night. <laughs> That's right. You'll see. It's, it's quite nice. It's quite nice. Um, but we did do an interview. Yes. With a person. Oh, I wasn't sure if there's going to be more conversation about my beautiful no, son. No, it's okay. We could, we could talk about son. <laughs> I'm actually, I haven't met him yet. Soon. It's true. We've been very cautious for these first eight weeks, but he's currently six and a half weeks old. He's beautiful. Adorable. Shout out to my incredible wife who both carried him for mm-hmm. what ends up being about 10 months. <laughs> Um, they don't tell you that. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, and has been amazing ever since he was born as well. Um, I say theoretically shouting out to her because I'm not convinced she listens to this episode or any of the episodes, but um, she really is an amazing mother. So um, shout out to her. And uh, yeah, that's all I've got to say on it. Okay, great. That was good. That was like our little 30 second parent uh, update. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The future parent corner we'll coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, we did do an interview, and it was excellent. Mm-hmm. Would you like to say well, who it was good. with? Sure. Uh, so we interviewed uh, Ani Kardashian, who mm-hmm. is at USC, who has done some really interesting work looking at food insecurity and disparities in chronic liver disease. And I will say it was an excellent time and a fascinating interview. And. I hope that everyone gets something out of it because we certainly did. Yeah, this was a great, great interview. We were both pretty uh, psyched during it and after it. And so I hope everybody enjoys. So Alex, you know, I like to think of all of our guests as friends. Yes, except for that one. Right. Well, okay. But (laughs) today... We have a very special guest okay. who is a friend mm-hmm. and a former co-fellow of mine, 
She's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Go Trojans. Uh, we have Dr. Ani Kardashian with us. Ani, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm great. Adam, dear friend, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's an absolute honor to be invited. So very happy and excited to be here. Oh, that's very nice. And Alex, you're also a friend, just so you know. <laughs> to at least some of the people on this. <laughs> Maybe by no, the we're... end. Maybe by yeah. the end. Uh, but thank you very uh, much for being here. We're, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So, Ani, we usually ask uh, our guests to start by just describing um, their scope of practice and, and their specific research interests. So if, if you could describe for us and, and the listeners um, your, your, the sco- your scope of practice and your research interests. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so um, as you mentioned, Adam, I'm a transplant hepatologist at uh, Keck in, at the at Keck School of Medicine at USC in Los Angeles. So I primarily work at our Keck Liver Transplant Center, um, doing pre-transplant evaluations and caring for patients after transplant, um, so involved in post-transplant care as well. And I also work uh, and spend some of my clinical time also at our LA County USC hospital, so at our safety net hospital, for, uh, through which um, USC is also affiliated. So my clinical work is really split between Keck and LA County USC. Uh, I recently transitioned to uh, predominantly a research position, actually. Mm. So um, I was doing mostly clinical work for my first two years. And in the last six or so months, um, made the transition to doing primarily research. So now I'm, I'm actually more, you know, 75% research and the rest of the time wow. is cl- clinical work. So that's kind of how my breakdown is. And my research interests really in the last two to three years have focused on social determinants of health and liver disease, as well as, and more specifically, on food insecurity, mm-hmm. access to uh, financial access to food, and how that affects um, the risk of NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as well as other liver health outcomes. So that's really been my research focus in the last few years. Great. And what what drew you to those those topics? Because they're pretty specific um, and unique yeah. for our field. Yeah, they are. You know, I I think what drew me to transplant in general was you know I worked at uh, when I was a resident, an internal medicine resident at UCSF. I worked um, both at the county hospitals in San Francisco, and I also worked at the, at the liver transplant center at USC. And I really saw the gross inequities that we're facing people with chronic liver disease. You know, often patients who have cirrhosis are marginalized. Um, I saw that so many patients that I took care of at the county hospitals never even made it to get a transplant evaluation, although they often needed it. And then Mm -hmm. sitting in transplant selection committee meetings, as I'm sure you guys Mm -hmm. have also done, you start to realize how unfair and subjective that process is and how so much of how people get chosen for transplant is based off of what kinds of resources they have. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what really drew me to transplant in the first place and why I found the field to be so interesting. I felt like there's so much work to be done to even the playing field and to make access to transplant more equal. And then I, about three years ago, I read a an article in the Journal of Nutrition about food insecurity and how it increases the risk of NAFLD. And I, and I really thought to myself, well, that's really interesting. That's, yeah. you know, a financial, that's a social determinant. That's a ability to access food and how, and really 
no one had shown that that was related to any kind of liver health outcome in the past. So I felt like that was kind of a, an opportunity to, to jump into an area that really hadn't been studied yet. And, and then I, I really got into to food and food as medicine and um, just access to food and how that affects um, liver disease. So that's really where the interest came from. And we're going to dive a little bit deeper into sure some are. of your work in a, yeah. in a few yeah. <laughs> in a few minutes. And, and you, you've, you've sort of maybe almost already a little bit answered this question, but I was going to ask you, you know, how you come up with the research ideas that you've had. It sounds like you were inspired by by that the one article you read. But in mm-hmm. general, like how has sort of the yeah. the evolution of of your of your work um, come about? Yeah, I I spent a lot of time looking at what is being done in other specialties. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. um, I know, have seen how there's really not much published on food insecurity and liver disease. Um, but there's a lot that's been published in the realm of food insecurity and diabetes and mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease and other diet-sensitive diseases like NAFLD. Um, so I've often sort of taken a lot of my ideas from reading other um papers and other subspecialties and thinking about how we can apply that similarly and whether those concepts and hypotheses for how food insecurity impacts chronic illness, whether those can similarly be applied to NAFLD and, uh, you know, liver fibrosis and cirrhosis in general. Yeah. Well, that takes away my next question, which was about if you used uh, ideas from other specialties to uh, come up with your research ideas. <laughs> but I think, I think it's a, a very... It's helpful to hear from you because I think that as a trainee myself, but especially throughout training, there's an early career, I'm sure people are often talking about like finding your niche, what's your niche, et cetera. And it sounds like this was sort of the process through which you were able to find a niche that's been incredibly successful for you uh, early in your career. And so it's nice to sort of have that as one potential sort of strategy um, for niche hunting, obviously, within the context of you having sort of an umbrella interest in social determinants of health and and health uh, inequities within transplant and then sort of finding your one specific thing within that. I'll also say that, you know, I I wasn't sure if this was going to be an area of interest and that could Mm. be successful. And that's where I really found that having the right mentorship was extremely important at my stage. And and I continue to find that to be very helpful because I'm very early in, in this process. Um, and so I, I really also have to thank my mentor, Nora Tarot, who, you know, who I ran a lot of ideas by and who said, that's a good idea. No, that's not a good idea. Mm. This is, could be impactful. This, I don't think so much. And I think having someone who knows also what is go, you know, potentially going to be both impactful, but also interesting and fundable mm-hmm. is is all part of that process as well. So let's dive in um, <laughs> uh, to, to food insecurity and as it relates to liver disease and particularly NAFLD. So first, um, just for our listeners, can you broadly define what food insecurity is? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with what food security is. <clears throat> so food security is access uh, by all people at all times to enough food for an active and healthy lifestyle. And on the flip side, food insecurity is really actually a household level determinant, but it's the household level social and economic condition of limited or uncertain access to nutritionally adequate foods 
or the inability to acquire foods in socially acceptable ways. And that's really due to lack of financial resources to be able to really not having enough money to purchase food. And the concept really emerged as an analytic construct in the early 2000s when more traditional measures of nutrition like BMI were not adequately capturing the lived experience of of being hungry um, and of experiencing hunger. So that's really where food insecurity came from. It's it's defined by the USDA as, as what I had just said. Um, and it's actually can be very, um, very well measured. So we, we actually have a very well validated metric for measuring food insecurity through a, a household food survey. Um, and that's really how we how we measure food insecurity in, in individuals and in households. Got it. And at the liver meeting, you gave a great talk, which was the inspiration to have you here. Um, in addition to the plethora of papers that you've published, just a few years out of fellowship, despite, you know, Adam doing much less. So thus far. <laughs> I knew that was going to um, be a shot. I was just waiting for it. Um, but at the liver meeting, you gave a great talk. And one part of the talk was sort of making that link between food insecurity <laughs> and then poorer health outcomes. Yeah. Um, and could you just sort of describe that vicious cycle that, that leads to worse health for people with food insecurity? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something that, you know, I, I, it's a conceptual framework that I did not come up with myself, but we have applied this to the field of, to, to NAFLD and to liver disease. But really the way that we think about the cycle of food insecurity and poor health is that is, is really one of stress. So inadequate access to food is one of the most stressful situations that a household can experience. And when people face food insecurity, it's it's the coping strategies that they employ to avoid hunger that then puts them at risk for chronic diseases. And these might be adaptive in the short term. So such examples would be shifting uh, intake to dietary intake to lower cost, um, but more highly filling foods. So like very kind of nutritionally poor, but highly caloric foods that will keep people full and prevent them from going hungry. But eating poor, you know, having a poor diet and poor diet quality, if that's sustained over years, that can predispose people to poor physical and mental health. And then once you become chronically ill and you get diagnosed with a chronic illness, your healthcare expenditures rise, the ability to maintain a job goes down, that puts increased pressure on your food budget because your household income goes down, then you're experiencing spending trade-offs as a household, and you're more likely to be a food insecure household. And so that's really the cycle of food insecurity and chronic disease. And we've seen that, we've seen how food insecurity can lead to a higher risk of developing diabetes and cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease. So a lot of diet sensitive diseases. And now more recently in the last few years, we've shown really the profound negative impacts that it can have on, on fatty liver and chronic liver disease as well. And can you tell us a little more about that as it relates to fatty liver disease? Yeah. So, you know, that study that I was mentioning um, in the Journal of Nutrition was an evaluation of the NHANES, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And it was a cross-sectional evaluation examining, um, you know, the relationship between food insecurity and the risk of NAFLD, as well as the risk of NAFLD-associated fibrosis. And the study actually found that people who were food insecure had a 40% higher risk of developing NAFLD and uh, over you know, two times greater odds of developing uh, significant liver fibrosis as compared to people who were food secure. And that was even after controlling for physical activity and um, 
race and ethnicity, other socioeconomic factors mm-hmm. like income, education level, there still was that uh, quite a strong relationship between the two. So that was kind of the seminal paper looking at food insecurity and, and fatty liver. We were we've kind of dived into a bunch of other sort of questions and we're really interested in looking at, for example, the long-term impacts of food insecurity mm. on health outcomes in people with fatty liver. So we similarly use the NHANES um, to mm. re- examine the relationship between food insecurity and mortality, uh, as well as healthcare expenditure use in people with NAFLD and advanced fibrosis. And we found a significantly greater risk, about a 46% higher risk of mortality among people who had um, who had NAFLD and almost 40% higher uh, risk of mortality among people who had advanced fibrosis um, if they were food insecure as compared to being food secure. And that was, again, after controlling for all these other sociodemographic characteristics, other metabolic comorbidities, you know, diabetes is associated with mortality, so we controlled for that as well. And we still found that there was a significant relationship between the two. We also saw that just there's a higher prevalence of food insecurity in people with NAFLD as compared to the non-NAFLD general population. In our um, in our cohort or in the NHANES, we saw that there's an almost 30% rate of food insecurity among people with NAFLD uh, as compared to about 18% in the general population. So a significantly higher risk of of that as well. And, and the question is, what came first, right? Is it right. food insecurity, yeah. have a high risk of NAFLD, or if you have a chronic illness, then you're less likely to afford food. And that's what we, you know, we don't, we don't know yet. We really don't know. So you've mentioned the NHANES database um, a few mm-hmm. times. I wanted to ask you what it's like sort of working with a large database like that and, and how um, you've learned to uh, sort of navigate it. Yeah. So, um, you know, the NHANES is, is great. Uh, we've actually all of our food insecurity papers have really come out of that. Um, And we're starting to now use other data sets that are more granular. But the NHANES is really nice because it contains all this information about diet quality, uh, outcomes. It's just a really well-characterized cohort. Um, And the, the really the way that I've found to be successful with using the NHANES is, um, is to really get to know the data set and also to work with, I, I work with a phenomenal biostatistician who has been really helpful and has also like together we have learned a lot about the data set and what data is actually in there. So I think with the having someone who has um, also is familiar with the data set or has become familiar with the data set has made it so that we now can really understand uh, you know what data is available, what variables and co- covariates we actually have for each year in the in the cohort. And really how we can answer the questions that we want to using a data set like the NHANES. I mean, the beautiful thing about it is that it's publicly available. So anybody can get access to it. But really mining through it is the challenging part. Um, But I think once you kind of, you really kind of just have to jump into it. And, um, you know, I think once you kind of have done one analysis where you really get to know the data, it, it makes future studies a little bit easier and the data set a little bit easier to to navigate. Getting back to food insecurity, in your early description of food insecurity, it very much was tied to sort of a financial lens. And so whether it be through a financial lens or otherwise, are there specific interventions that you think would be most impactful in decreasing food insecurity? Yeah, that's a great question. I 
I do. I have, you know, I really think that there's so many, certainly levels where we as a society and Mm -hmm. as providers need to be intervening. But what I'll also say is that food insecurity has become a major, major issue and public health problem in the United States in the last few years. And because of that, because of how the rates of food insecurity have risen as a result of the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, other sort of macro economic forces that have mm-hmm. led to higher higher cost of food in the last years. We've all probably seen at the grocery store. It's now becoming even more imperative that we do find solutions, as you've yep. mentioned, to food insecurity. So, you know, at the at the society level, I you know, the gov- federal level, I think it's really really important that there's funding allocated to people with chronic illnesses. So the SNAP program or the Supplemental Nutrition Mm -hmm. Assistance Program, it was formerly known as the Food Stamps Program, but um, it really provides food to about a little over 40 million people per year. Mm -hmm. And it's really based off of your income. And, And so if you're in the very, very sort of low bracket, income bracket as a household, then you qualify. And it's actually, you can, people who are sort of in that lowest income are the ones that that really see benefits and those who might be a little bit above, but are still really struggling to access financially access food actually may not be eligible. So I think expansion of eligibility for, you know, to, to sort of liberalize, um, access to SNAP is one step. And then Mm -hmm. secondly, to also open up access to people with chronic illnesses. So, you know, making sure that people with chronic liver disease or cardiovascular disease or end-stage renal disease, similarly, even if they don't fit that income bracket, but are still very marginalized, get access to such benefits. And then, you know, there are a lot of community programs that are Mm -hmm. in, you know, in place. And I'm sure New York has a lot of, you know, there are a lot of food banks in Los Angeles. We have, you know, food banks that really are are providing food to, to people who cannot afford them. And I think as providers, um, you know, these infrastructures are already set up and that really creates an opportunity for community partnership as providers with food banks and other um, resources, sort of food assistance programs to then create, you know, not just provide foods, but actually medically tailored foods to people who with chronic illnesses. So I think that's really uh, an opportunity, actually, where we could, we could intervene, and we have a a way of providing expertise, but also partnering with infrastructures that are already present, and programs are already present to provide nutritionally sort of healthy foods to our patients, and really to provide the types of foods that we need to for our patients with cirrhosis or NAFLD, so who have very specific you know, um, dietary requirements. It's a reminder of how like overwhelmingly unacceptable it is the degree to which there's food insecurity in America, a country that is theoretically quite prosperous. And um, I know at least in New York, there are so many charities and different programs that just help to link people to SNAP programs, because even when they are people that would qualify, there's so many hoops to jump through um, just to get to it. And so I completely agree that it should be expanded, but also there are resources we can probably pair our patients with just to allow them to get what they already would qualify for. Yeah. And I think you've kind of hit 
hit it right there. Like that's as the other thing we could be doing as providers is to actually start screening our patients for food insecurity. And if we find that they're food insecure, then we can we can direct them to our case managers or social workers and appropriate resources. We may not be able to provide it ourselves, but we can link them to programs that do provide those resources. So that that's another opportunity for us to intervene and to at least identify the problem um, and then to, to kind of refer appropriately. Yeah, well, just to ask <laughs> the uh, logical follow-up question, uh, how would you recommend we screen patients for food insecurity in clinic? Yeah, so there's a there's a very easy survey. It's the U.S. Um, Household Food Security Survey. There's uh, an 18-item questionnaire, so that's sort of the more extensive version. But there are shortened versions that have also been validated. So there's a two-item yeah. questionnaire called the Hunger Vital Sign. That's sort of the simplest way of doing it. And, and I would consider using that if you're also thinking about screening for other material needs insecurities, such as housing insecurity. Um, so that that's a nice one you can use. It's mm-hmm. just a, a two-question survey. And then there's also a, a sort of a longer six-item version that's still shortened, but really captures the essence of being food insecure. And I'll also say it's a very dynamic process. So people might experience food insecurity one month, but two or three months later, they they kind of they have a job and they're able to secure food for their families. And so it really ends up being this extremely dynamic process. But I will say we've seen rates go up dramatically in the last one or two years. Uh, you know, before the pandemic, about one in ten people were food insecure. One in ten households were food insecure. And you know what I'm what we're seeing now is it could be as high as one in five households with as a result of you know food inflation and um, the pandemic so and then you know sort of early on in the pandemic there were all these resources that were being provided um, but but now that's kind of all stopped so we're we're seeing less of that and people are really struggling to be able to afford food when when you do get someone who who screens positive and this is probably city state specific but what what are you you know what do you do with that information you, how do you take that information and kind of use it to to come up with a plan or, or a referral or, or you know how, how how does that work for you yeah so if i uh, you know and i've actually i do have several patients in my clinic who are food insecure and we're we're now starting to screen for food insecurity in our our clinics at Keck. Um, and so when I when we see somebody who's food insecure, we refer them to our our social workers and our case managers and uh, ask them to also sort of exam evaluate the patient. Um, and then we provide them with the sort of information about local food banks that are are available in their area for them to to really go and try to access food. A, a project that I'm working on now that I'm hoping to I just was able to get a little bit of money for, uh, but that I hope to get off the ground soon is a, a medically tailored meal program for liver transplant candidates, where we um, will food patient, we will screen patients for food insecurity. And if they are food insecure, then they could, they could be randomized to a, a sort of a short term medically tailored meal program for 12 weeks. And then we um, will examine outcomes such as hospitalization rates, um, need for paracentesis, sarcopenia, frailty, other sort of metrics of, you know, poor outcomes in people with um, decompensated cirrhosis. And what I'll also say is that this has been done in other fields. So 
in cardiovascular disease and heart failure. This is this is not new at all. And actually, in California, Medi-Cal, um, our state insurance recently um, in the last two years funded a program where they're actually going to cover um, medically tailored meal programs for people with congestive heart failure. And they're wow. examining on a statewide level, they're examining outcomes of um, hosp- rehospitalizations, um, uh, presentations to the ER, um, et cetera. And so they're really actually on a state level looking at um, the impacts of a medically tailored meal intervention. So I think you know, on a policy level, this is so far out, right? Like we can't think about, it's really hard to think about an insurance company covering the cost of food, but like, but long-term that that's the goal. I mean, long-term it's to show that something like this could be really effective Mm -hmm. in people with a chronic illness and that we should, we should, we could actually save money by providing medically tailored, you know, very sort of nutritionally focused foods to people um, with cirrhosis. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was gonna I was gonna zoom out a little bit and ask about um, the disparities review you um, you wrote in hepatology, but actually the question I was gonna ask you is kind of related to the the point you were making. Um, and it's really interesting how, especially for this, you know, dietary program for congestive heart failure, trying to come up with sort of solutions to these issues. Uh, you know, for us as like a medical community, it seems like some of these things are so far out of reach. But you know, by demonstrating the issue. And showing that there's a problem, it seems like at least, you know, among that patient population, on a policy level, there was able to be changed. But I guess maybe sort of on an individual provider level or as sort of like a community level, um, are are there interventions that that are more immediate that we could push for either just specifically with food insecurity or maybe more broadly in terms of some of the disparities you've highlighted in liver disease that that you would recommend or that you think about or things that maybe we're not thinking about that, that we should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think so much of it is also just recognizing the problem. That's kind of what I've also mm. realized is just sort of like identifying that these disparities exist and like within your institution. And I, I don't know of many institutions that are screening for social determinants among their general hepatology patients or their transplant patients. And I will also say it's really it's really tricky in transplant because people come in and they don't want to fe- seem like they're resource poor because... Mm-hmm because they might be judged for that, or they might feel like they, they're they going to be judged for that, or that they are not going to be able to afford their meds after transplant or have the resources to be taken care of. So I, like, that's actually kind of, it's, I found that to be challenging, sort of this added layer of complexity to really identifying the problem in my clinic. I We actually sometimes wonder if people are under reporting mm. their food insecurity, because mm. they're worried that they might be declined for transplant if we, we find that they're having trouble paying for food. Um, but I think the solutions are, are tough here. Like we, we really like, not only do we need to identify the problem, but then we need to figure out what, how are we going to even the playing field here? And that, that's a really, that's going to be in, in the realm of food. It's, it's maybe it's providing healthy food vouchers or medically tailored meals. Um, I think there are in, for housing. That's again, it becomes more challenging, and I don't know if I have an answer um, for that. Um, but I think that so much of poor or the poor health outcomes that we see in our patients are a result of people's circumstances, as opposed to anything that we are able to do for them in our clinics and any medications that we are able to prescribe for them. 
Yeah. I, I think yeah. it's it's outside the, the scope of this discussion, but but Ani wrote a great um, review in Hepatology about the disparities um, in chronic liver disease. And it's really a, a, an overwhelming um, read in, in a good way. Um, it's like very, very comprehensive, but also very, very, <laughs> this is not meant to be disparaging, but it's just, it's very, you know, it's like, there's, it's, it's pretty um, impressive, you know, the the degree to which there's there's much work that, that is still ahead of us in, in so many different <laughs> disease processes um, within hepatology. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'll, I'll say it was um, similarly an overwhelming process to write the review. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. But I, you know, Lauren Nephew and I uh, wrote it, most of that actually together. And I think we what we really remarked on is how little information there is on. So we found Mm. so much, so many areas where we don't have any data on what the disparities are. And, um, and so we see things anecdotally in practice, but we, we really, we really need more data. We need more evidence on what, what the disparities are and then what drives them. What's the reason why? And why are people, um, you know, who are, marginally housed, less likely to get access to hepatitis C medication. And, um, but it was, yeah, it's really sort of an eye-opening process to write that just to see really like one, how, how bad the disparities are in liver disease, but also that there's so many areas that we still need to really focus on and to really learn more about. Yeah. Everybody should check out that article. It's a a call to action (laughs) of sorts. Um, and is also probably ripe with a lot of uh, different research projects for potential trainees, which was my very poor attempt to transition to our final question, um, which is that in, in looking over your resume, it seems like many ASLD-related programs for trainees um, you have done. Um, so you were an emerging liver scholar, I believe, and then you were also a recipient of the Advanced Slash Transplant Hepatology Award. Um, and so we were just curious... On, on behalf of our listenership, if there were certain experiences that you had when you were a trainee, which may be one or both of the programs I just named, that you thought were most impactful in sort of putting you on this trajectory to being a very successful uh, early career researcher. Yeah, well, thank you um, for describing me as a very successful early career researcher. That's what we do here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I really, you're patting my... Um, my self-esteem here. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I mean, I will say that the AASLD has been extremely instrumental in the path that I've taken on my career, my er- very early career, I'll say. Um, but the Emerging Liver Scholar Program, I, I remember doing it. It was in 2015. It was my first time attending the liver meeting. Mm-hmm. And it really felt like a life-changing experience for me. I, I felt like I was getting thrown into the world of hepatology, but also um, I saw all the potential and all the oppor- opportunities through the AASLD. And that, and then uh, you know, applying for the Advanced Transplant Hepatology Award, I will say is uh, somebody who did not do a T32 program, so who did not do a research track program and fellowship, mm-hmm. I really felt like when I had decided that I really liked research and that I wanted to pursue research later than a lot of my research colleagues, that I may not ever have the opportunity to do that. And that that was a really going to be a, a big hill to climb. And I, the Advanced Transplant Hepatology Award, when I got it, I was um, 
well, I was very shocked, first of all, but it, <laughs> it also, but it also gave me the confidence to, to think that I could do it and that I could actually make a transition, um, like, I, like the one that I have. And so it, not only does it give me a little bit of money as a starting faculty, but it also, it showed that I could get funding and that was really Im- important because I then applied for a KL2 award, which is an internal uh, K award and in my, my first year as faculty and I got it and it was, you know, it's a tough transition to make from being a primarily clinician to mm-hmm. then taking on a research, more of a research role. And I, I really felt like that award and being part of the ASLD community helped me, like really helped me to get there. It gave me the conf, it gave me the confidence yeah. to, to apply and to actually take the risk and to do it. Um, and for that, I'm extremely grateful. So I feel as though if I had not gotten that award, I would have never thought I could do it and probably wouldn't have tried if I'm being completely honest. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity and we'll see where things go. Um, it's definitely sort of, <laughs> it's, it's different coming on as a clinician and then transitioning to being a researcher. Um, but it's, it's been really cool and it's been really exciting and a lot of fun and I'm excited to see where things go from here. Right. And as a reminder and a plug to those listening, if you are a a resident, um, the Emerging Over Scholars program applications are open and due April 17th. April 17th. That's what you wrote here. Okay. So is this triggering for you, Alex? I'm just teasing. Are you you trying to get back at me from- I am, yeah. I was taking a shot at you. By by mentioning that I was not an emerging liver scholar. That's correct. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Got it. Okay. I thought we'd spell it out for everybody. But I'm also not an advanced (laughs) hepatology award winner, which you are. So like, you know- Your words, not mine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to- I felt felt bad, so I wanted to bring you back. No, no. It's good. It's good. Okay. Um, so, Ani, I guess now we, we test how closely you read the recording instructions um, because we're going to be transitioning. I'm, I, I, <laughs> we, for, those, for those who aren't here, which is all of you, uh, Ani just made a really funny face because um, <laughs> we're going to be um, transitioning into our, our quick lightning round lightning uh, where round. we just ask you uh, a few questions and you just think of the, uh, the first thing that, that comes to top of mind. Um, it's very stress free. Don't don't worry. I feel I felt I felt the mood in the Zoom change a little bit, but I'm I'm bringing it back. I, I I'm think bringing that was the mood excitement. back. Yeah, I, I'm actually. I see more like trepidation. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not gonna lie. Okay. But I'm, yeah. Who knows? We'll see what. Don't know what. That's right. I will. Yeah. We'll 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 start you off with a maybe something of a softball. Um, nah, actually, we won't. Um, so Ani, can you describe <laughs> a uh, a point in your in your training or, or maybe early career where you felt like luck played a role? Ooh. Um. Oh, so many, at so many times along the way. I think luck is such a big part of this. Luck and hard work, but luck definitely. So funny. Alex just texted me. Well, I'm going to cut you off here for a second. Alex just texted me. Maybe don't ask the luck question. Uh, Well, no, I I thought it was such a good answer about how the award sort of. That's true. You're right. Career trajectory. But but that wasn't luck. That was skill. No, that wasn't luck. That was, that was earned. Um, but so, but so I lucky. guess you're right. We should ask for a luck. We should yeah. ask for a luck one. That when one, I, I was got the award, tra- it was luck. But when she got yeah. the award, it was skill. Yeah. <laughs> that one I think was lucky too. Um, I don't know. I felt like I got, I was very lucky to have gotten off the wait list to med school at UCSF. And then like, that's where I was exposed to liver transplant yeah. and where I fell in love with it. So, you know, yes, a little bit of hard work, but probably a little bit of luck as well. And I felt like that kind of changed the tra- trajectory of my career. Got it. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, good that's one. a good one. 
Okay, next question. Hopefully easier. Um, what's the last... And you can pick more than one of these categories. I, I, I would actually okay. encourage it. But what's the last either TV show you've watched, movie you've watched, or book you've read? Okay. Um, I'm reading a book on potty training, my okay. <laughs> uh, 20-month-old daughter. So that's the book I'm currently reading. Um, just being totally is it, honest. Is it a good one? I, I, I recently read uh, 12, 12 hours at 12 weeks, um, but I am obviously have a younger child than you um, by virtue of that. But Potty Training, is, is it a good book that we should uh, recommend to the audience? It's a good book. I think it's called Oh My Poop is what it's called. There you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah. found it to be, well, we'll see how it works. I, I don't actually yeah. know if it's, we haven't tried please, it out yet. Please get so. back to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, oh no. It's called, oh crap, potty training. That's what it's called. Oh, there you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Um, the last television show I recently, my husband got me into, um, the new, uh, show, the new golf show on Netflix. Oh, full swing. Full uh, swing. Yes. Sure. And now I am so into uh, professional golfers and wow, the, interesting. There you go. <laughs> yeah, real that and like the new Saudi league and the sort of yeah, the dynamics sure. between sure. that and yeah. the PGA. Yeah. So live total yeah. live. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm I'm like I'm really now into golf. So yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Perfect. And then we'll wrap it up. Wrap yes. it up with one more. We'll do the one. The thing, one. The one that we always ask this. Ani, you know, so we're going to ask you uh, what your favorite liver cell is. Ooh, I think the bile duct. Does that count? Oh. Is it failure? Is it, it like the cholangiocyte? Yeah, totally. The cholangiocyte. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the cholangiocyte. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I okay. feel like that is so important in um, the liver, the function of the liver. Oh, no need to explain yourself. It's so, okay. No, we're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the last person who said cholangiocyte described it as the cutest cell in the liver. Well, um, I said bile which... ducts, so I'm not sure that's any better. But yes, no, that's okay. <laughs> we understood. We knew. We knew. No, we knew. We knew. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very okay. much. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank that you. was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Ani. Thank you. Uh, now we're all friends. What an honor yeah. to be here. So thank you. We really, really look forward to seeing your your future work. Um, to say that we're rooting for you would be an understatement. This is an important, important area of our field. So thank you so much for being on. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. And we are back. Thank you again to Ani Kardashian for joining us. A pleasure to see her. Um, and I, that was yeah, great. It was really, it really was great. Um, so for for this last start before we, we wrap up, we wanted to review some basic tools that are clinically relevant uh, relating to food insecurity, just to sort of tie a bow on our chat with uh, with Dr. Kardashian. Alex, what did you what do you have? Yeah. So we had asked her. I was quite inspired by that conversation, and also realizing that I think food insecurity is something that I am certainly well. I don't think I've ever screened for it, but it's not necessarily uh, on my radar when I'm talking to patients, and it should be, uh, because clearly a lot of people are affected by it, and since we're all seeing a lot of NAFLD, but it also affects any number of liver diseases, we should really be looking into this in the right patient population. And I was thinking about how in our training, we certainly learn how to sort of screen or think about the basic roster of questions we should be asking for a lot of other disease states. This morning, I saw a patient uh, that I was worried about how much alcohol they were drinking and like could immediately rifle off six to eight questions or 10 questions to get like a really thorough picture of what they're doing or when the new patient comes in with fatty liver disease and doing like basically a full diet recall in, in clinic. But 
I don't really know where to start or what questions to be asking for food insecurity. And so um, Dr. Kardashian had uh, usefully mentioned a few different screening tools that she thinks are quite efficacious. And so I, I just looked them up and thought we could talk about them a little bit. So the very quick hit is the hunger vital sign. So that's not the 18 question or the six question version. Um, and we can talk about those in a second. But the hunger vital sign is basically just screening for people that may be at risk for food insecurity that you could even just refer to social work to try to do sort of more of a formal screening and connect them with resources. But so it's just two questions. And basically, you're worried about anybody that for each of the questions says it's often true or sometimes true. So presumably, you would set this up as like, always, sometimes, often, or always, often, sometimes, or never. And so uh, the questions are, within the past 12 months, we worried whether our food would run out before we got money to buy more. And within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last, and we didn't have money to get more. And it's the screen is positive, even if you answered uh, sometimes true to just one of those questions, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then there's the U.S. Household Food Security Survey. And because I know it wouldn't make for good podcasting, I'm not going to read out Does the 18 really? question <laughs> survey. And <laughs> it's a fair point. Um, but there is a shorter one, which is the six item. And I think that like realistically, even through creating like an epic smart phrase yeah. or something um, like dot food insecurity, you could pull these up and be able to ask them pretty quickly if needed. And so I'm just going to read these just because I think something sort of clicked when thinking about these. And so all of them are basically answered either yes, no, or often, sometimes never. Um, and so the first is the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have the money to get more. So that's the same as the screen that we sort of heard before. We couldn't afford to eat balanced meals. And then was that sometimes often never true in the last 12 months. And then in the last 12 months since last, in this case, February, did you or other adults in your household ever cut the size of your meals or skip meals because there wasn't enough money for food? If the answer is yes, then you figure out how often that's happening. And then the last one is in the last 12 months, did you ever eat less than you felt you should because there wasn't enough money for food? And so really quick questions, but I think they would really allow us to sort of figure out what people do need further help. And I do, as we talked about in the interview, think that there are a lot of resources in a variety of places to try to get people more food. Um, but a lot of people just aren't get it, even getting screened or not getting sort of connected with those resources. But I think my biggest takeaway from even hearing the questions is that it's, it sort of gives some description to what food insecurity yeah. feels like for someone. And it's pretty brutal, you know, ending meals hungry, not having enough food, not being able to even afford balanced meals or meals at all. And it, it sort of gives you a sense of why, as Dr. Kardashian was talking about, this leads to the cycle of stress leading to chronic illness. Like this is really fundamental to existing and um, is something that I think all of us should have in mind because we could make a really big impact in a patient in their whole family's lives if you're able to screen people. Listeners, if you're out there, let's all commit to screening at least one person in the next time we have clinic after uh, hearing this episode. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a great episode and I learned a lot. 
I mean, I guess I shouldn't say I thought it was a great episode. I thought it was a great interview. (laughs) An interesting interview. We're self-deprecating enough on this podcast. So we'll give ourselves some credit. It was a good job. But thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you. And uh, we will be back next month. Yes, we will. Shout out to Andy Coyle. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thanks, Andy. I hope you are having a lovely New Year so far. Yeah. Um, And with that, bye, Adam. Bye, Adam.